Well, 7.08. You heard it at the uh, top of the hour Fox News news break. 7.08 is when the oxygen on the Titan submersible is expected to run out this morning, which... Uh, you know, makes this race against time all the more dire, especially when you couple that with the fact that it takes about an hour or two to reach to uh, lift to the surface. And uh, you heard, I believe that was uh, Captain James Frederick from the Coast Guard, who's been been great on all the uh, press conferences that he's been holding lately, saying that, uh, you know, they do have other options. They do have other contingencies um, but it's it's at at this point, hoping for a miracle seems to be the the dominant strategy. Um, and speaking of Captain James Frederick, uh, the, his one o'clock news conference yesterday had a much different tone um, than the one on Tuesday. Tuesday, it was very uh, it was very hopeful. I wouldn't say upbeat, but uh, the one that was yesterday uh, seemed very cautiously cautious uh it seemed like it it was almost like he was referring um to the search and rescue as more of just a search even though a a reporter did ask um you know is this still a search and rescue mission or is this a search and recovery mission uh just just based on his tone and he goes, well, I, w- I want to make it clear. It's still a search and rescue mission. However, you can kind of tell by his tone, um, he was getting more concerned um, as uh, as the hours ticked by. And uh, look, the, the, the Coast Guard's in a tough spot. Um, the Canadian Navy's in a tough spot. The American Navy's in a tough spot. I, I mean, this this literally is a needle in the haystack. Um, they've expanded the search area to uh, twice the size of uh, Connecticut. And there's still no guarantees that uh, the, uh, the the Titan submersible is in the search area. So hoping against hope here. Um, you know, I'm, I, I, I don't want to say I dread uh, what we're going to be, how we're going to be talking about this tomorrow morning, but it, uh, it, it it's, it's starting to seem less and less hopeful a um, couple things came out about the safety of uh, ocean gates submersibles the other day david lockridge used to be the uh, former director of marine operations for ocean gate he claimed that he was wrongfully terminated from uh, the company in 2018 for raising safety and testing concerns about the submersible um uh, Stockton, uh, um, what's his name? Stockton Rush. That's it. I had it right here. Stockton Rush, the CEO of OceanGate, who is stuck in the submersible. Uh, audio from a podcast he did last week um, is surfacing uh, with David Pogue. He told him, at some point, safety is pure waste. I mean, if you want to be safe, don't get out of bed. Don't get in your car. Don't do anything. And 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 all these people on board, they're adventurers, right? And we're going to hear from a Metro Detroit man who's actually been on this submersible and they all ha- have the kind of the same mindset. They're adventurers. They know the risk. They signed a waiver that said, uh, you know, a mission like this can result in a lot of bad outcomes uh, up to and including death. So, uh, you know, these people are built different. It's not something I would ever risk. Um, but, 
they, I mean, they knew they knew the risks going into it, and and unfortunately, uh, those worst case scenarios might be coming true. We're going to uh, continue to wait and hope for the Hollywood ending, and uh, you know, wait for that Disney movie, uh, the inspirational true story of their amazing rescue. Because at this point, um, it's really all we can do. Crazy scene in Congress, Congress yesterday as the House floor erupted into chants of shame. Hold on just a second. Um, let's see here. Let's try that again. Interesting. Okay, well, we don't have that audio. Uh, Adam Schiff is being uh, censured for his role in... Um, in uh, looking into Donald Trump's uh, uh, collusion with Russia, uh, allegedly, um, during the 2016 election, the John Durham report, who uh, John Durham himself was testifying in front of Congress the other day, um, uh, he his report came out and, and it said that there was no strong evidence of any uh, collusion with Russia on Donald Trump's part. And uh, obviously the House GOP are not too happy with Adam Schiff, the Democratic congressman from California, and uh, they voted to censure him, which uh, uh, to me, uh, a censure is mostly symbolic. But uh, I don't know. They I I guess they need to send a message. And uh, Adam Schiff, obviously, uh, for his political part, is saying that uh, he wears this as a badge of honor. Uh, So. The uh, NHL Hall of Fame class was um, announced yesterday. And like Nick predicted, Henrik Zetterberg did not get in. However, pleasant surprise, a uh, old hockey town favorite, Mike Vernon, got in, which kind of came out of nowhere. He's been uh, eligible for a very, very long time. And I've been beating that drum that, that Mike Vernon belongs in the Hall of Fame uh, for a while. Um, if you look at... Grant Fuhr, who is uh, the other uh, NHL Hall of Fame goaltender of his era. Um, the two of them played, for the most part, the same amount of years. Vernon played from 82 to 2002. I believe uh, Grant Fuhr played from 81 to 2000. Um, obviously, Grant Fuhr's got those four cups with the great those great Oilers teams in the uh, late 80s. Vernon's got those got has two cups with two different teams. Uh, that one he uh, won with Calgary, and then the other one he won uh, with the Red Wings back in ninety six ninety seven, which really kicked off the hockey town era. And uh, I, I'm not going to bore you with stats here. Uh, I would just say Google Mike Vernon's uh, Mike Vernon stats versus Grant Fear stats. Grant Fear has about eighteen more wins. But Mike Vernon's got more shout-outs, has a better GAA, and has a better save percentage. So congratulations, Vernie. It's long overdue. And uh, I think Ozzy should be next. But that is a, uh, that's a, that, that's a, uh, a conversation for another time. Uh, big goaltending class. You had uh, Henrik Lundqvist. He got in his uh, first year of eligibility. Tom Barrasso um, from uh, Buffalo. And, and I believe he won a cup or two with Pittsburgh. He got in, and and as far as I can tell, he's the first American goaltender to uh, make it into the Hall of Fame. Uh, women's hockey player Carolyn Oliette made it in. Pierre Turgeon had a bunch of great years with the Canadians. 
Ken Hitchcock, he used to he won a cup with Dallas and my buddy Eddie Belfort and Pierre Lacroix, who was GM of uh, the Nordiques and Avalanche, also made it in. All right, five fourteen on first thing with Mike Parsons. Uh, when we come back, John Selleck, uh, one of the uh, area's foremost uh, political strategists, um, takes a look at Donald Trump's alleged court date, the trial date for those uh, for the trial of those. Uh, um, classified documents in Mar-a-Lago set for August. Will it actually happen and will it affect the 2024 election? Uh, we'll find out next. All right. So federal judge Eileen Cannon has set an August 14th trial date for Donald Trump regarding the charges he's facing for keeping classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago property in Florida unsecured. So how will this trial affect the 2024 presidential race and Will the trial actually start on that date? Uh, John Selleck, CEO of Harbor Strategic, public relations on all talk with Tom Jordan. Yeah, well, I think the short story is I I will be surprised. I think most legal observers will be surprised if it actually can start that fast. Um, In the bigger picture, you know, I'm not an attorney, but I worked uh, for two different Michigan attorneys general and spent a lot of time watching all these legal maneuverings. And there will be a lot of meetings. There's a calendar call meeting prior to the, the start date. We're really going to debate who's ready for a trial, what discovery has taken place, what discovery even can take place because of the sensitive security nature of the documents. And then we fold in the fact that the judge that got selected randomly was probably the last judge that the Department of Justice wanted. It's somebody appointed by Donald Trump, who's relatively new, um, has only conducted four trials at the federal level, and certainly not one that involves the Classified Information Procedures Act, which is meant to allow a criminal prosecution while protecting the sensitive information that's involved. And I think just that alone, trying to figure out how do you run a trial without exposing the very information you're accusing the ex-president of putting at risk um, is a really tricky thing. And we've never seen it happen before. And maybe, Tom, the way we saw President Trump handle his um, his arraignment in Miami kind of gives us a hint about how the president side of uh, President Trump side of the world will handle these upcoming trials. Yeah, it, it is a very tricky situation for a presidential candidate. He is not allowed to speak about the case, and if he does so, it could damage his, his case. But then again, if he does not speak about it, it will damage his political campaign because his opponents surely will be discussing this at length. Uh, if you were to advise him, which I know you wouldn't, <laughs> Uh, but if you were to, <laughs> what would you tell him? Boy, I think, actually, he, he laid out the model, and he may have created the model, frankly, over the term of his first term. He laid out the model for how, how to handle this, and it's sort of the opposite of how the world used to work. Something like this happens, you go away, right? You duck in shame, you pull, you know, you, you suspend your campaign, blah, blah, blah. What President Trump's team did in Miami when they were getting arranged for this thing was to show up in Little Havana and go to the most famous um, Cuban restaurant that's there. If you've been in Calle Ocho at Versailles, that's where you go um, at the epicenter of that road. And then he went back to Bedminster and he held a party. And what they're sending that signal is, I'm I'm not going to get sidelined by this. I've got a lot of supporters in a lot of different areas, not only in Florida and Miami, but back in uh, New Jersey slash all the folks from Washington who showed up. This is all political and I'm just going to plow ahead. I mean, the human cost time of... um, even as somebody who in, seems to enjoy the brawling of presidential politics, for Trump, the human cost, the stress of dealing with this, and for his team, 
is going to be immense. And his team's focus is going to end up being drawn into this a ton. They'll, you know, they'll divide. They'll have parts of the team, like on the Super PAC, they're spending all their time going after Ron DeSantis mm. and maybe some of the others. Um, but the president's inner circle is going to have to be focused on this and how you keep up this, hey, I'm fine. I got a lot of people around me. This is malarkey. You can pull that off in a burst for like Miami, but to pull it off for months at a time while you're trying to run a normal presidential campaign will be incredibly incredibly draining, but it's kind of the only path for him. And then strangely enough, what we learned during Trump world from PR and politics is that bad news used to seem like a bad thing, but what bad news does for Trump is it sucks all the oxygen out of the room for everyone else. Mm. It makes it harder for the media to go and cover Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott and Nikki Haley and everyone else, right? Yeah, I don't know if they like that all, all that much. And, and you, you add to that all these ads that Donald Trump is pushing out against Ron DeSantis. I don't think Ron DeSantis is very happy about this. It's interesting because his Republican uh, opponents, some of them, like Ron DeSantis or Vivek Ramaswamy or uh, Nikki Haley, seem to be, at least in some sense, supporting Donald Trump in this fight. And does that help Donald Trump more than it helps uh, Vivek Ramaswamy? Well, they're they're in a tough spot, and we know it's not going to change because they want some of those Trump voters, especially if for some reason Trump does not remain in the race. For whatever reason, they're stuck doing that. And DeSantis is trying to be cute about it. He's trying to walk that line for now. But I, I think you bring up a really good point. I mean, the first RNC-sanctioned debate will be sometime in August in Milwaukee. Um, that could be right in the middle of when this trial gets underway, if it actually does get underway. I think some of the opponents will think it's smart to just let the media have done the talking. The media will have covered this 24 hours a day, nonstop. Why do I have to get into it except for maybe a, a couple of sleight of hand things? I think um, going back to something you said earlier, what, what Trump, what if, if I was advising Trump on what to do, like say you're at the debates, a lot of the polling that's come out from the national, you know, NBC, ABC types lately yeah. basically says, um, a whole lot of Democrats are nervous about Joe Biden serving again because he's way too old. So there's an opening. But most Republican primary voters, um, they're standing with Trump on this. They think that the prosecutions in New York and uh, Miami and potentially in Georgia are all political. But at the same time, very small percentages want him to keep talking about what happened or didn't happen in 2020. Very few percent, low percentages want him to keep talking about his trials and his, and his wrongful prosecution in their eyes. Um, 96% want him to talk about what his plans are going forward. They want to hear what he's going to do about inflation and what he's going to do about national security, what he's going to do about a lot of other domestic issues. So that's where my advice goes as we head toward these debates. He can't forget to keep talking about that. But his his tendency is to talk about himself a lot. Yeah. And so it'll be interesting to see how disciplined he can be, not constantly talking about being the victim here of Joe Biden, right. and do what the voters are looking for in the primary. And that, they talk to me about the policy. That's why we want to vote for you. Yes, and I think that would resonate with a lot of Americans, not just the Trump base, but other Republicans, other independents, and even some Democrats who are tired of the policies that they believe are not truly Democratic Party-esque uh, under this current president. So to that point, uh, I mean, maybe there's something happening here in the polls, because CNN put out a poll that shows that Donald Trump's support is starting to dwindle, as high as it still is, but it slipped from 53% in May to 47% today. That's a six-point drop. Do you think that at this point the American people are just so fed up with these investigations and they're starting to push away from him? I think it, it, that is 
probably true. Um, what we have to see is how that uh, plays out over the long term. What other stuff gets exposed? Do some of the thing, these things go away? Like when we look at the Hunter Biden results, where he basically got a slap on the hand after years of investigations, if that's what sort of happens to Trump, then people will be like, all right, you're right. You were wrongfully done in. Let's go talk about policy. But, you know, when we talk about their exhaustion and hearing about this stuff, like I think I said, um, CBS poll said 96% of Republican voters wanted to hear Trump talk about his plans for a second term. 90% want to hear about his plan for inflation. 78% want to hear about his plan to cut taxes. They want to focus on economic issues and what's going forward. Um, and if he is drawn into talking about the investigations and being wrongfully prosecuted all the time, and if you were facing decades in jail, potentially, um, you probably would have a tendency to want to talk about that. That's going to be a problem. And I wonder if um, some of his opponents on this debate stage, the strategy sessions, Tom, are going to be absolutely fascinating if we could <laughs> listen in. Um, I think a lot of them will think, I don't want to have to bring up the investigations myself, but I want to kind of help nudge Trump into talking about him. I want to make him insecure about it. <laughs> Even when I attack Joe Biden for trying to put Donald Trump in prison. Can you imagine Donald Trump yes. in prison? So he'll be saying that to his face on the stage, trying to get him worked up and talking about that. Political and PR guru John Selleck on uh, how the August uh, trial date might affect Donald Trump. All right, well, the whole world is still waiting in suspense, hoping that the Titan submersible and its five passengers who set out to explore the Titanic wreck site at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean will be found alive and well after being lost at sea for the past five days. Metro Detroit man Joe Wartman has actually been on a dive on that very submersible, and he talks about his experience, what it's like on board with Guy Gordon and Lloyd Jackson. It's awfully deep. It, um 12,000, 13,000 feet down, there's probably only two or three vessels in the world that can get there. So yeah. this, is, this is a real tragedy in the making if they're not able to get back up. Take us inside that submarine. And, and uh, I've been told that it's about the size of a, a, a minivan, five individuals in that space. What's that like? And also just the, the, the climate that's down there, how cold it gets, how warm it might get. Yeah, so the, the vessel, if you, I don't know, picture a Tylenol pill kind of with capsule, rounded capsule at either end, uh, the center of it is a t carbon fiber core with titanium domes fitted to either end. And then the, the sides and the roof have motors and antennas and all kinds of devices. But uh, you open up, you know, the one end that has a small porthole, which is unique, um, questions as to whether or not that's smart to have a viewing window at that depth but um, you get inside a tube and you sit on the floor um, they put a rubber mat there and it's very clean led light um, handlebar and uh, they take about an hour to close it the doors close uh, 17 bolts um, you know seal you in and then they put a vacuum on it to, to pressurize the vessel to mine 500 feet below the sea level so any chance of, um, you know, leakage is really eliminated by them putting the vacuum on it. And then they, they, they drop you. So the, the process to even get in the water and bolt you in is, uh, it's a good hour and a half long. And um, same thing on the exit. You know, just even if they get to the surface, um, there is a tremendous amount of work to try and get them out. There's, there's a, it's not easy. It's a, it's a very heavy vessel. Uh, and it's very strong with titanium domes and this carbon fiber material. Right. 
Joe, is there a monitor inside up there that, that measures and tells you how much oxygen you have left inside? Yeah, very much so. Uh, ironically, our we had some problems on our dive, and we had to stay far longer than we had planned. And uh, we ended up, you know, going over to the secondary oxygen system that they refer to so much. But uh, nobody's really talking about the CO2 scrubbers. Um, you know, that is equally important. Uh, you can have the oxygen, but you got to make sure that the, the air within it is not poisonous. So you're, you're balancing two things. Uh, and, you know, I, I worry. Um, I think the, the thing that is different about this scenario is when I was down there um, and we were on the bottom troubleshooting some items, we had text communication with the surface the entire time. And on this dive, from what I understand, they lost communications somewhat abruptly at about an hour 40 into the dive. It makes me wonder, you know, what, what could have caused that. When, when you were aboard, and uh, obviously there's been an awful lot of look-backs, and some might call it Monday morning quarterbacking discussions of, well, they used a, a PlayStation-type controller to uh, manipulate uh, the submersible, uh, the fact that there were concerns raised within the industry that it wasn't certified. Uh, but when you were aboard, was there an obsession with safety? Did you feel like that was the number one priority? You know, I had one of my friends say, look at Mount Everest. How many bodies are there? This is high risk, high stakes. Um, I don't think there's anybody that would certify this. As for safety, uh, I think everybody knows there's a risk. Um, there was complete transparency. You know, every morning the briefings went, what was broken, what wasn't, what needed to be done. But, um, you know, perhaps uh, in my case and most people, the focus is all on the pressure. And um, I'm a pilot. I I recognize the, the, the vessel is just one piece. You have to have electric working. You have to have hydraulics working. You have to have communications working. And um, what, what, kind of perhaps caught me off guard was the any one of these systems is equally as critical as the pressure if Mm -hmm. you don't have electric you can't get the drop weights dropped which means you don't have the ability to float and go back up if you don't have communications you can't tell people where you're at so any one of the systems breaking down is critical to um you know this safe operation there are a lot of redundant systems in it and I feel what scares me is something, um, they would have gone to the redundancy systems. There, there are drop weights that are supposed to burn off after 24 hours. There's the emergency hydraulic system. But um, who knows, if there was a pressure event, you know, you have 1.4 million pounds of pressure at that depth. It would have been, you know, just catastrophic. Right. If they're still down there alive, um, I'll tell you, it's it's messes with your head. It's, well, uh, it, it, it's it's tough. How cold is it down there? Because I've heard testimonials from others that say, you know, it can be either be very warm and uncomfortable, or very cold and uncomfortable. Uh, you know, it, it, yeah, it's very warm at the surface, but as the water temperature at the bottom by the Titanic is about thirty three degrees, just above freezing, and it just kind of conducts through. Uh, so you, 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 we dressed in layers, you know, and as the dive got longer, you know, we continued to layer up. But um, 
Yeah, it's it's at this point that would be a concern, but I would think that the amount of clothes that we are forced to bring plus our dive suits would, you know, that wouldn't be a primary concern for me. Joe, I understand that there's a release that has to be signed as well, and and we were talking about it yesterday, and they were saying that on the on the first page they they mentioned death like three times. Any apprehension in signing it after reading this this release? My wife will kill me for saying it, but I didn't read it. I knew what I was getting into. Sure. Most people out there do. I will tell you, there's a lot of bad press about this controller, a, a game controller. Yeah. It's actually a, it's a simple control that did what it needed to do, and there's not much you know, complications with it. And sometimes simple is better. I never saw the controller as an issue. It worked. It, it was it was the other systems, core systems that, you know, get you. And what I don't think people understand, too, this is, this is like a game of Plinko. We dropped three-quarters of a mile south of where the Titanic was known to have sunk and two-and-a-half miles of fall with drift and current and water temperatures had us land by the back of the ship in the mm-hmm. debris field. But, you know, about 100 yards away was the boiler. I mean, you know, if you, if you crash into the debris field, which the back of the Titanic, which exploded when it sunk, um, there's a lot of debris that can trap you. So it's it's not without risk. Um, and, uh, you know, my hope is that they are able to dial in where it's at. I have no doubt they will bring that sub up one day. There's yeah. two billionaires, one from Pakistan and one from Britain, that the resources that the U.S. government is putting forth, plus them, tells me they'll get it up, but it will it be in time. Well, I, I can only imagine that when you break through the gloom that it is a magical moment when you see the Titanic before you. I've only got a few seconds left, but just tell me, is it everything that you hoped it would be when you got down there? No. Um, you know, we saw the debris field at the back. Um, I was very proud of the fact that two missions later, the team that went down after us, and I passed on that second dive, you know, took all the beautiful shots. We were on dive you know, dive uh, mission four, where we did find the Titanic, and all of the other prior missions were, were unable to find it. So, yeah, I was proud of the team, and I was proud to be a part of something unique and the pictures and all of that. But uh, right now, obviously, very saddened by the whole situation. Amazing firsthand rec- uh, account by uh, local uh, man Joe Wortman, uh, who was actually on the very submersible. Uh, that's lost at sea right now. And again, uh, 7.08 is the estimated time uh, that the vessel is expected to run out of air and uh, still hoping for a miracle. Be right back. Wild scene yesterday on the uh, House floor as uh, Adam Schiff was censured uh, along a party line vote for uh, comments that he made about uh, Donald Trump's campaign ties to Russia uh, on the day that uh, John Durham actually um, testified in front of Congress about the Durham report, where he said that he found no evidence that Donald Trump uh, colluded with Russia back in 2016 um, to give him an advantage uh, in the election. And uh, it, it was a scene, it almost looked like British Parliament when all the uh, House <laughs> the Demo- yeah, yeah, started chatting, shame, shame, shame. And uh, I said yesterday, uh, Guy Gordon and Lloyd Jackson, that my new favorite soap opera 
is the news because if you were to walk into a Netflix meeting and just show them the front page of the USA Today, they tell you get it out of the boardroom because nobody's going to believe any of this oh, stuff. Yeah. Or or the uh, the cable channels, the cable news channels as well. I mean, it's always uh, uh, something spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> if Real Housewives did a congressional edition, that's, <laughs> that would have been what we saw yesterday. Yeah, Real exactly. House members of D.C. <laughs> yeah. That's what it should be called. Yeah. You know, as, as they rallied around Adam Schiff, I, I looked at him and I thought, they're, they're going to pick up this guy and put them on their shoulders. And then I saw it was Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, uh-huh. And I got, now nah, that would, a lot of people could get hurt. Yeah. If they yeah. did that. But it was, listen, Adam Schiff got so far out of, over his skis so often through the Russian, if you want to call it the Russian collusion hoax, but you hang a labor on it. But through that, he, he professed to have evidence that he never produced. He continued to exaggerate the seriousness of it. Say what you will about the Durham report. They didn't come up with anything that was relevant. Mueller didn't come up with anything that was relevant. In the end, it was a nothing burger. And whether that deserves censure or not, I'll leave up to our listeners. But um, he certainly fed the the lie, if you want to believe that. Yeah, he, he definitely fed the monster. Well, it, but here's my question, though. The, these censures, uh, do they carry any teeth or are they, are they mostly symbolic? You know, they're going to have hearings after this. To, to kind of do a uh, a documentary on on the the things that he said mm-hmm. that in, were not didn't have any basis in fact. So yeah, they may, they're going to damage his reputation. He's also in a race for Senate in California. Whether or not that will have any impact on that, I don't know. It does call to mind something though that happened maybe twenty years ago. Carolyn Cheeks Kilpatrick, when she was a member of Congress, mm-hmm. Bill Clinton was censured. She got on the House floor. She thought he was being censored. Censored. <laughs> and yeah. it was almost like the skit from Saturday Night Live with Emily Latella saying, you know, what's all this about presidential erections? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was, what's all, you know, she was basically, there is, they, you cannot silence the president of the United States. I condemn this censoring of the president. Yeah. And it was like somebody whispering, ah, he was, he was censured. I was, I was going to say, mind. doesn't she have someone on her staff to like proofread her, her speeches or something? How, how, how did he get to the level? To the point where she didn't know it was censured yeah. and not censored. And you're watching other people on the, you know, thanks to C-SPAN on the floor of, of, of uh, the house going, Oh, somebody stop her! Somebody, somebody, please! The eye rolls were. I mean, but. see, I'd be the opposite. I don't want. I'd want to see it where, where it was going. Uh, so yesterday, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito uh, he wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal defending a 2008 fishing trip uh, that uh, he he took a private jet to uh, with uh, Paul Singer, a hedge fund billionaire and Republican mega donor, uh, who's actually had ten cases in front of the C- Supreme Court. Uh, which Alito did not recuse himself from. What was interesting was that this op-ed was published in response to um, a ProPublica investigation that hadn't been released yet. It, yeah. it was released an hour before ProPublica <laughs> released it. So ProPublica asked Justice Alito for his comment on this. His comment was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. I'm not responding to your nonsense, but I am going to respond to it in my forum. Which I don't know if if releasing a Wall Street Journal op-ed is is going to win a whole lot of hearts and minds. It, to me, it kind of smacks of connection and privilege, where if uh, you know that something is being written about you unfavorably, you can just call up someone at the uh, Wall Street <laughs> Journal and say, hey, I need to get an op-ed published right away.
Yeah, well, and he's a Supreme Court justice, so, you know, uh, they're, they're going to go for it. They're going to go for it, and uh, he wants to control the narrative his way. Yeah, which, and for an hour, owns like, what narrative, what narrative? You know, people are probably Googling. Yeah, I, I invite our listeners to look at the Wall Street Journal op-ed page today because the editorial board has responded to this mess. They call this a fishing expedition. <laughs> that oh. ProPublica and the left are looking to thin the court. They're looking to delegitimize the court, and so they are going on these efforts to show these things. Now, the problem here isn't that he violated recusal or ethical rules. The problem is there are no ethical or recusal rules. Right, right. It's about perception, not about reality. And to me, that gets at the heart of this story. Well, and I mean, you know, you hear that, uh, you know, he's close friends and he's, you know, he took these expensive, uh, this expensive trip with this guy who's had 10 cases in front of the Supreme Court. To me, on the surface, that sounds worse than what Clarence Thomas was uh, accused of because Harlan Crow didn't have any uh, cases in front of the Supreme Court directly. I think some people like drew some six degrees of Kevin Bacon correlations to something, but there was nothing direct. Except that Mr. Singer was not named in any of those 10 cases. So there was nothing, he was not named as a defendant. So there was nothing in there that would have been a, a, a blaring alarm mm-hmm. to anybody saying that this is a... Now, how many times as a reporter have you recused yourself from going on a story saying, I've got a personal relationship mm-hmm. and this person can't do it? Mm-hmm. I've probably done it a half dozen yeah. times. Oh, yeah. Um, the... the <laughs> When, when the priest that married Gail and I got caught up in a sex scandal, <laughs> wow. uh, had to recuse myself from that one. Um, <laughs> Tell me why you didn't do it. Yeah. And Gail said, I never liked that guy. And I said, that's good because apparently a lot of the ladies in the parish did. Yeah. yeah we're gonna, I, and, and Maybe you guys should renew your vows if you haven't yet. <laughs> right. Not, exactly. Not trying to Make tell sure you. Make sure that paperwork yeah. is done right, right? All right. Well, for more wacky uh, reverie like this, stay tuned for JR Mornings with Guy Gordon, Lloyd Jackson, Nick Roddy coming up right after the news. WJR 760.